Welcome to the Racially Responsible Podcast, a show designed to call in, support, and provide loving accountability for white women and anti-racism work. If you have ever questioned your role and approach in this work or wondered how you can create an impact for racial equity and justice, you are in the right place. I'm your host, Rory Geller Muhammad, a white woman doing this work alongside you in real time with my family, local community, and institutions that I'm connected to. I'm also a licensed clinical social worker, the creator of the Changemakers program, and deeply committed to working for a safe, loving, and inclusive world. I'm so glad you're listening and joining me on this journey. Here we go. Welcome, friends. I am excited. Today, we have Christina Farinacci Roberts as our guest. Christina is a learning architect, diversity and inclusion strategist, keynote speaker, soul coach, and 20-year veteran educator who is, who is passionate about driving equity and excellence for all. As the founder and chief consultant of Head Heart Hands Consulting, she advises senior executive clients to create equitable systems and inclusive structures for diverse stakeholders to experience greater individual and organizational flourishing. Using her experience as a New York City high school principal, she creates interactive and immersive learning experiences that support leaders to remove barriers and shape cultures that drive substantive change and fuel sustainable growth. Christina is also the matriarch of a blended family who strives to model to her two children the unrelenting work ethic and audacious ambitions her Korean tiger mom and Italian-American veteran dad instilled. She is very strong in her faith and maintains her sanity with yoga, jogging, CrossFit, and frequent karaoke sessions. Welcome, Christina. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. So glad you're here. So I know we read that, but I always like to give everyone like the opportunity to just share a little bit about like the work you do, like what your day-to-day looks like type of thing. Oh, sure. So I recently turned 41 and um, decided I would do a four-week trial period of waking up at 4 a.m. so that I could get my quiet time in, you know, daily devotional prayer, a little bit of um, yoga, and then go to the gym at 5.15. So my four-week trial ended, I think, like a week or so ago, but I'm, I'm maintaining it. I'm going strong. Um, I would say, you know, I am a mother, I'm a wife, I am an entrepreneur. So I'm basically always on the go, always moving. Um, but always at the heart of everything is, you know, how can I live a life worthy of my calling? And that's, that's, that's what I'm doing. That's awesome. No, that's awesome. You're doing amazing, amazing work. Um, can you tell us about, um, your racial, ethnic, cultural background and if and how that's impacted your work and how that comes in for you. Oh yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, I am a veteran educator um, by trade and I am half Korean, half Italian, um, which makes me like a hundred percent crazy. So my mom is, um, she's a Korean immigrant and she grew up dirt poor on a farm and she was forced to basically stop going to school um, in third grade. And so she doesn't have a formal education, but she certainly gave me my work ethic and she always instilled in me the importance of education. And so part of what drove me into the profession that I did um, was this idea, like I didn't want my future students' zip codes 
to determine their destinies, which for so many people it is. And so I feel like living proof, like it's never lost on me that, you know, the child of someone who didn't get to go to school past third grade became a high school principal in one of the largest, you know, school districts in the country and to be one of the youngest. And it really is the result of the power of education, right? Like within one generation to kind of totally transform um, a family's like future legacy. So that's really part of what drove it. I'm also my my Italian um, American father, who's also a veteran, like that's how he met my mom. Um, and I'm actually first generation college graduate. So mm-hmm. I, I definitely think, you know, navigating through high school and college as somebody who was, you know, mixed race. Um, the advantages were right that it it allowed me to kind of, I think, flow through different groups. Um, and then, you know, there are times also where you kind of feel like you're in this in-between land of like, I'm not fully this, I'm not fully that. People right. in this group might not fully accept me. People in this group might not fully accept me. But I think how it's informed the current work I do as you know, uh, wellness, inclusion, diversity, and equity consultant is that I try to approach the work from a place where I think of those who are in front of me and how I can cultivate a sense of all of us based on our multifaceted identities, which are related to, yes, race, gender, religion, um, socioeconomic class, um, even things like birth order and whether you grew up in a city or the suburbs or right. out in the country, like all of these things contribute to who we are as a person, how we show up and what our value add can be. And so kind of um, always centering in this work, the sense of, you know, we are always going to be able to flourish the most when we are in spaces where people not only accept us, but embrace and value and honor um, the unique identity that we bring to to the workplace or any community space. So I know I love how you put diversity, equity, inclusion, and wellness, wellness in there with it, because we don't, I feel like we don't hear that that much. And it's such an important, you know, aspect and part of it. Could you share like a little bit more? Because, you know, what does that look like? What is that aspect? Yeah, that work? absolutely. So I will tell a quick story, which is how <laughs> um, why dynamic dynamic dialogues came to be. And so my best friend since second grade is Nigerian American. So she grew up um, as the child of an immigrant as well, or immigrants. And um, so we shared that in common. And she is a former corporate health and wellness executive, as well as a strategy consultant. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, um, we both had businesses that were not viable in their current state um, when the pandemic began. And we kind of had to reinvent ourselves. And so while we were going through that process, we decided to create a pretend podcast called The Wild Wild West of Adulting. It's a YouTube channel. Um, Our small but mighty subscribership of 10 people um, had one listener was a um, global head of people for a legal services company. And she had some wellness initiatives and some DEI initiatives that she wanted to have and and basically, um, you know, solicited us to put in a proposal um, and to partner together. So I kind of looked at my best friend and said, this is genius. I'm like, we're going to rearrange the letters and we're going to create a wide framework, right? Wellness, inclusion, diversity, equity. And it was because we saw these 
two normally siloed endeavors being actually really so integrated because um, all of the research shows, right, that women and people of color are disproportionately at risk for burnout, they're disproportionately experiencing burnout, and they're disproportionately leaving the workforce as a result of burnout. So when you, and also wellness tends to be an easier entry point for a lot of people. Sometimes, I mean, DEI work now, sometimes if you just hear the word DEI for people, it's an automatic trigger or there's a lot of underlying assumptions that this is going to be sort of doom and gloom or that it's going to be um, shame and blame. And that's just not the approach that we take, right? So um, we really come at it with um, more of a optimistic view about, yes, not sugarcoating where all the work is coming from and why this work needs to be done, but really seeing it as a natural flow of like, if you, it's why flourishing is at the center of, of how we talk about this work, because right. who doesn't want to flourish, right? And so when you ground it in that, um, I think people are more likely to want to engage. And so why wellness and workforce well-being is really at the center of the DEI work is when you help people to make the connection that if there's not diversity, right? If somebody shows up to a space and feels like they're a token or they're the only, um, and there's not this sense of being included and being able to show up as your authentic self and having that belonging, um, and that there aren't these equitable opportunities or access or outcomes, then you can see how it it really not only deteriorates that individual, but it it also um, hinders their ability to contribute to the organizational mission. So there's both like, I kind of always say, yes, there's this moral imperative that is right. definitely at the center, but there's also, you know, that business case for it as well. Um, and I don't think one outweighs the other. And I never like to center it as like, oh, well, if you do wide work, you'll make more money because that's one that's gross. But <laughs> but it's like it's a natural consequence right. of doing the right thing, I think, you know. Right. Um, right. And so that's kind of how I would um, I would describe the connection or how we try to integrate it. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's so because that wellness is so right. That's I love how you're using it both as like an entry point. Also, it is so connected. It just, yeah. it's not. And so I, it's awesome. I think just how you're doing that. That's really cool. Thank really you. Cool. What are some of the common challenges that clients or organizations that you work with experience? What are some of the things they're coming to you with or some of the things that, that you're seeing? Sure. So I think um, what George Floyd's murder did um, last year was force people to confront the racism that has always existed um, and what that has looked like in corporate spaces. And so, you know, everybody had their black squares, everybody had their pledges, and then everybody was looking really saucer eyed, like, okay, we just made these commitments, but we actually don't know what those commitments look like in real action. Um, and we don't, we're a little overwhelmed. We don't know where to start. Um, a lot of times people's initial um, entry point to this work tends to be like, let's do a implicit bias workshop. And we do have something called, um, we call it creating a culture of inclusivity because, you know, we want to ground it again in 
um, something that is positive and something that everyone can kind of get behind. Um, and then we kind of back our way into, you know, why, why do we not always have inclusive spaces and get to those root causes um, and then move people forward. So um, that is one of the things, but I think what we, we've, we've sometimes talked people actually out of that workshop to say, it doesn't make sense to start with a workshop around um, creating a culture of inclusivity. If you don't have a a more robust plan and vision for what you want wide work to look like in your organization, because then what winds up happening is you have this random training and it's more of a compliance driven thing where it's like, check the box, we did the implicit bias training. And then everybody goes on their merry way and culture actually doesn't shift or change. Um, So we actually really encourage um, organizations and senior executive leaders to think about what is the wide vision that you have for your organization and how does that tie to your organizational mission? Because um, if you, again, only ground it in like DEI in a vacuum mm-hmm. or wellness, inclusion, diversity, equity in a vacuum, it, it won't quite hit, it won't resonate and it won't be sustained. So we like to always, um, again, draw people into understanding what the issues are, understanding the approaches they can take, but contextualizing it within their industry and within their respective roles and responsibilities. Because then you see people, um, the little light bulbs going off and it clicking. And then again, it it is it feels more natural to want to do it because you're like, oh, I'm not just doing it to do it. I'm doing it because I'm here to serve in this particular role. And I have these certain goals that I'm trying to achieve as an individual and that we collectively are trying to achieve and being more conscious and proactive in, you know, wide endeavors is going to help all of us to get there. So I think that's one aspect of it. Then we had people asking us about, you know, a lot of our employees are experiencing burnout, right? Nobody is um, sort of shocked by this. We often talk about how a lot of this is rooted in what was this triple threat of the global pandemic, the economic downturn, um, and the ongoing social justice issues and civil unrest that has sort of um, come about as a result of that. And so when you think about these confluence of factors, you it's no, it's no wonder that everybody's feeling burnt out. Right. And so what we thought was a little bit funny is they kept asking if we had a workshop and we were like, "Mm, but most people are doing workshops right now via zoom, which is actually causing an exacerbating burnout. So we didn't think that would be the best way to hit it. And also, you know, 60 minute, 90 minute, even if you could do a 120 minute um, workshop, it's, there's so much to cover. So what we came up with instead, we kind of used my learning architect background and thinking about micro content. So we created the 21 day um, harmony journey. And what this um, offering allows organizations to do is really think of it as a journey. And even when the 21 day journey ends, it's not the end of the full journey, but you're going to continue in some way. But what that allowed us to do is not overwhelm people, first of all, right? So people would get either in their inbox or in in the intranet or whatever platform an organization disseminates their information. They have like five minutes of something to consume and then five minutes of a way to apply it, right? And so sometimes it was a video, sometimes it was an article, sometimes it was an audio clip or an interactive exercise. 
And we covered a variety of topics. We went over the signs and symptoms of burnout. We went over what we call the nine essentials of total health, which is um, grounded in the Harvard School of Public Health Flourishing Index. And it um, entails looking at health from a physical health, mental health, spiritual health, uh, financial stability, career satisfaction, social connections, uh, close relationships, meaningful purpose, and playful living. So when you look at health from those nine angles, you can again see how the things like the pandemic and um, the economic downturn and the social justice issues would really detract from those things. Um, and then um, we also look at the leadership, right? We, right? we address leadership and say like, how are you modeling self-care? How are you promoting healthy work-life harmony boundaries? Um, and then we also solicited feedback from employees on what are some policy or practice um, changes that you would want senior executive leadership to consider that might help um, work-life harmony to be easier, more feasible. Um, and so, yeah, so we had different things like that. And it was great for employees because you obviously get all of these resources. It was great for the employers too, because during the process, we're, we're collecting a lot of data and insights to help organizations um, be able to uh, determine like where are your greatest needs and right. what should you prioritize in terms of wide initiatives right. um, moving forward um, and making investments that are going to give you the biggest bang for your buck and be able to um, leverage those data and insights. And then the last piece um, that we really focus on is women's leadership development. And um, my partner has um, a lot of work around swagger and I have a lot of work around soul. So we call the women's leadership development um, swagger and soul uh, women's oh, leadership good. development. So right. those are, I think, you know, and why that's so important given again, the current state of things is that, you know, we've talked about, you know, women leaving the workplace in droves as a result of this pandemic, right. whether it was because they had to stay home for the childcare or to take care of a, a older family member. And so like, what does that do to organizations that may have like started to make real progress in this area of having equity in terms of gender? And then all of this is getting, you know, sort of um, pulled out from underneath them. And what are the ways that they can be proactive in being more accommodating and being more supportive? Um, I think that is actually one of the silver linings from all of this mm -hmm. is that um, I think women are going to be a lot better positioned to be able to ask for working conditions that yeah. are more conducive to their, um, you know, work-life harmony. And, you know, this whole scenario has proven that people can be just as productive, if not more productive, right. when they have a little more autonomy around um, how, how and when they, they show up for work. Obviously, different industries have different levels of flexibility. I'm, I'm from, you know, education. So, you know, a teacher can't be like, I'm just going to show up at 10 PM tonight when my kids are sleeping. Right. You know, there are certain, <laughs> certain industries right. that will have less flexibility, but I think even within those industries where you are a little more, um, uh, tethered to, to time, there are ways to bring in that flexibility, even yeah. in, in those constructs that I think senior executive leadership, um, really needs to be able to um, be responsive to. That's awesome. Um, you know, just, it, it hits on so many different levels, right? Like, like how you're working with like 
the different, like the leadership and the staff and, and everybody at different, that's really cool. Um, and I really love how you were saying like with the, the 21, how you broke it down with the 21 day journey. So it's more manageable um, yes. for people to take in. Uh, that's really, really, really cool. How you, how you all are doing that, that work that you're doing. Thank you. So I, I'm curious, like when clients, how do clients and organizations you work like realize they need help? Is there usually like a specific incident or is it like a buildup of many issues? It's, is there- that's a really great question, right? So um, sometimes we, we often talk about how, you know, customers vote with their wallets and employees vote with their feet. We've just talked, we've just heard all about the great um, resignation, right? right? And so some of what has been causing the, um, the organizations to be responsive in these ways is first you have out outside external pressure, right? So when we talk about the social justice issues and people getting called out, um, or what we like to do is call in and call up, um, then that might be the catalyst. For other organizations, it's recognizing that, oh, like a certain demographic of our employee subset is, is leaving, right? And, you know, what was our role in why they chose to leave and why is it disproportionately um, affecting who is leaving. Um, I think sometimes um, there are, it could be for legal reasons, right? Like if some incident happened and now they have to show due diligence that they're um, going to avoid that type of activity from happening Um, moving forward. But I think honestly, the biggest, the biggest um, root of this that I'm seeing is a truly an awakening of an understanding between um, all these things that we're talking about, right? That like, we used to think from a perspective of you need to show up, leave your personal life at the door, come in here, do your work, and then leave and be on your merry way. And I think what this pandemic has helped us to recognize is one, how like just not really possible that is, um, and that it's it's actually a very toxic way of thinking and being, right? To to make it seem that we can just compartmentalize. So it's like, even if you could compartmentalize in that way, that doesn't allow you to, it's, it's dehumanizing, right? right? So um, why not allow people to show up as their authentic selves um, and exhibit empathy where it is needed? And, you know, of course there are lines and boundaries to things. So it's not to say that someone needs to be exploitative of, of some, somebody's empathy or that, you know, they have, to not do their job, but there are always exceptions to rules. There are always ways to um, figure out how we can navigate these challenges together. Um, And the reality is it is much more expensive in terms of money and human capital to work with the people you have than to let them quit or have to fire them and then find somebody else, retrain and, and, and get that person acclimated into the system. So all of these things, again, are grounded, I think, in 
a human-centered way, but also just in a good business practice right. way, because they they both lead to, again, that individual and organizational flourishing. Right, right. Oh, I hear that. Definitely. Um, you know, especially that piece, right? Like this not really being that it's not healthy to decompartmentalize and like mm-hmm. work and personal life and that there is this, the overlap and that we show up human in both spaces. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like I don't stop being human because right. I like <laughs> opened a door and walked through it. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the things um, that I'm very passionate about is helping white women to build their capacity to do anti-racism work. And so I wanted to kind of hear from your experience, if there's any any common mistakes or misconceptions that you see um, white women or even just white folks in general making around this work, so to do, to do better, to be better, that would be helpful yeah. in the awareness or action realm. Okay, that's a great question. So one I one I like to remind uh, white women is being rooted in their own power, right? So white women. Um, while they are part of a marginalized community to some extent because they're women and we know there's lots of misogyny and patriarchy and all of these things, um, but it's their proximity to whiteness, right? So white men are tend to be their fathers, their brothers, their husbands, right? Um, and so that oftentimes does afford them different privileges. And so recognizing those privileges and being able to intentionally utilize them to be um, uh, abolitionists, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to contribute to liberation and equity um, is something that should feel exciting and, 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 and to feel empowered by that. Um, I think oftentimes what happens instead is the recognition of those privileges automatically kind of sends people into guilt and shame Um, and guilt and shame are not really great motivators for doing work. Right. And so um, it's being able to detach yourself from uh, things that are beyond your control, right? We can recognize um, ways that we maybe have been complicit to something. We can be aware and conscious of how we may have benefited from something. And then it's like, again, bringing it back to power and action and saying, um, where is it? What, what spaces do I occupy in which I have access in some way or power in some way that I can help? Um, maybe it's amplifying somebody else's voice um, when they're in the room and helping to give them that platform. Other times, It might be simply sharing concerns because there aren't other people with those identities in the space to bring those up. So you can be bringing them up and then again, trying to tie it back to, but you know, I'm bringing it up here, but really the person you might want to um, speak directly to who could, who could speak more to this and give you some um, different solutions or whatever you you can, you can do that. Um, I know there's often also a lot of talk about you know, it's not the marginalized group's responsibility to, whether it's educate or um, problem solve or things like that. So just recognizing, you know, being able to discern which is which and and doing that. But then also, again, I I mean, another part of this, I think is 
fear, right? It's attached to guilt and shame because people don't want to feel guilty and don't want to feel shame if they do, right? There's this fear of doing the wrong thing, right? Right. And I think, um, and I'll put wrong in quotes, right? Right. Um, But it's, it's the inaction that will always lead to more problems than misguided action or, you know, um, ineffective action. And the same way we treat mistakes in every other facet of life, which is usually, I mean, at least my attitude towards it, right. Or that mistake mistakes carry the lessons that allow us to, you know, their data points, right. It's like, Oh, this mistake mean meant I, my approach was wrong. My wording was wrong. My delivery was wrong, my whatever it is. And it's like, okay, now I can reverse engineer and think about like what, how, what would have been a more effective way to engage in that, um, in that work. So I think, you know, not allowing fear of quote unquote, getting it wrong to paralyze you into doing nothing. And part of it, you know, I don't also want to dismiss that in some cases, the fear is rooted in a reality, you know, we, we've called it now, right. Hashtag cancel culture. So it does exist, right? right? There are, there is this risk of someone writing you off because you took a misstep, but I think nine times out of 10, um, there's enough people. If you are, if you are approaching it in an authentic way and you can, genuinely show up and, and own your mistake when you have it and seek the necessary support and, um, articulate how you will do different and better moving forward than, um, you know, anybody you might've lost along the way, you know, you just, there's a accepting and expecting non-closure in a lot of these um, situations. Uh, it's part of actually um, when we do our like norms and um, how we're, you know, when we do a workshop, like that's the last thing we talk about is yeah. to accept and expect non-closure. Right. And in this case, it might be accept and expect things might be lost along the way. And, um, you know, we, it, it, it doesn't make it less sad, but we recognize that we have to move forward and all we can do in any given situation is our best right. in that moment and to move forward and to learn. Right. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate, you know, kind of really breaking that down for us. Um, I, no, it's awesome. I mean, you, you really, like, there's so many different levels. And I think one of the things that really stands out from what you said was this idea of, you know, if we're stuck in some of those negative emotions, we're not able to move to like, it is exciting that we can be part of creating this change, right? Mm-hmm. That we have to take power, that there is power we can use to create change mm-hmm. um, when used in the right way. Um, yes. And so, and I, and I think also by pointing out like this idea of like mistakes, I know that's always a big one that comes up also for people when I'm working with them, this fear of mistakes and the fear of what, um, and I think this, like you're saying, this idea of what is, how do we repair? How do we restore? What yeah. does that look like when that happens? And like, how it's so important to sometimes take that chance, right? Yeah. That it could be. And I, that, um, like you're saying nine times out of 10, it's not going to necessarily be this big giant cancel culture thing. And you're going to be put like pushing it through and working through it. Um, and part of that yeah. connected to the humanness of that as well. Exactly. And, you know, I think this is also what all of these things kind of will come back to. Um, oftentimes a lot of activists will, 
point out the centering of whiteness, right? Or the centering of oneself, right? So in these situations, I think what can be frustrating to, you know, other women of color, other people of color in these scenarios is that when you are still rooting it in your fear of X, Y, Z, fill in the blank, it's still centering yourself more than the problem that you're trying to address, right? And so can you um, allow yourself to do something that scares you when the people you're trying to help have to live with another kind of fear that is much more um, uh, unavoidable (laughs) and um, has you know, often much more dire consequences associated with it. So again, I think much of this work is always about how you can um, stop centering your own self as the not marginalized group or less marginalized group and saying, how can I be of service um, to this um, other person? Right. And I think that's also where like white racial affinity spaces sometimes can play a role to allow yes. people to kind of process those emotions to then yeah. to not have to put them in those other spaces, but to yes. in the appropriate space to kind of work it yes. through. Yes. But, Which is why the work that you do is so important <laughs> and really amazing. Thank you. But um, yeah, so no, I appreciate you kind of kind of going into that and, and sharing that with um, around that. I wanted to also ask you, because I feel like it doesn't come up all the time in these kinds of conversations, um, but about faith. And I know you've mentioned kind of the role of faith plays. So if you just kind of just share with sort of where that fits with your work, where that fits with all of this. I know for some people, they see it like it's a very big support for them. Some people Mm -hmm. don't affiliate maybe with anything. Um, and so I think there's a, I just think sometimes it's not always part of a conversation. So I just wanted to kind of like have it as part of it, of this conversation. I love that. (laughs) I love this. Um, So I am Christian. That's my, my faith background. And for me, my faith drives everything that I do. And um, I think actually this is where I can get really frustrated because I think um, a lot of churches have not, done this work well, or I've not done it at all, or I've done things that are actually antithetical to it, which I feel like is in direct contradiction to what my faith calls us to do or our faith calls us to do. And so for me, um, you know, I believe all humans are created in God's image. And so we all are, you know, fearfully and wonderfully made. We are all, um, you know, equal in that sense of our humanity and the inherent value that we possess and the dignity that we should be extended. Um, and, and so for me, this work is absolutely a part of living out my faith. And since I can't think of any religion that doesn't uphold that same type of of thought in some way, shape or form in terms of honoring our fellow, you know, humankind, um, I think, and, and since the majority of the world does practice some faith tradition of some kind, if we were all, again, upholding and living out those values, um, we wouldn't be in the predicament that we are, we would certainly be able to accelerate that progress. 
So to me, I think faith can be a really powerful tool um, in, in driving this work and also in addressing all those other things that I was, I was mentioning that can sometimes be the hindrance, right? Like if I know, if I look at my relationship to my maker as being the ultimate source of my identity and the ultimate source of my strength and the ultimate source of my hope and my joy, then it makes any potential consequence of pursuing this work um, seem less scary because I know that I'm in his provision and his protection in that way. And so I think, yeah, for me, um, I think faith can be um, a, a great foundation, a great motivation um, to do the work and to, 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 to stay devoted to it. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> so this is kind of a, well, I'm just going to ask. No, <laughs> I know you've, you've gotten, um, I know because you've, you've done this work with a lot of organizations. Yeah. Has it ever been to like, um, it, like faith-based institutions? Like, has that ever been an area or no, not necessarily? I'm just, just out of curiosity. So <laughs> we have yet to do this work um, with a faith based institution, though we did just um, win an RFP that is a, um, it's a nonprofit um, that, that does work in the community, but has a faith-based okay. um, cool. uh, source. So it, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so this, that will be our first time doing it. But I think even with that, um, I feel like because it's more driven by the community service versus right. the faith, even though that's like the history of its um, genesis was, mm -hmm. was rooted in that. I don't know that that will be um, a huge uh, driving force in things, but I, I mean, I'm super open to working with faith communities. Again, I think um, they have so many, um, entry points and you know you've got a theoretically a audience an engaged audience if you will right um, and I really respect the faith communities that are are taking it on because again just, I, I think what people forget is that in any church in any synagogue in any temple there's going to be just as much probably of uh, a range of beliefs and right. thoughts around this um, topic. Um, and so when any faith community leadership decides to make this a priority and in, in how they are doing the work that they're doing, they do quote unquote risk right. losing some, you know, membership or engagement um, and I think it's, I think that's what people have to be comfortable with, right? Is that um, the people you will lose likely don't share your same understanding of right. your faith, okay. if, if that's right. what's going to drive them away, right? Okay. And, you know, you hope that they'll be, they'll be able to see the light. Um, but if not, it's being okay with maybe having a slightly smaller congregation, um, that really is about um, living out their faith in every facet and every way. Yeah, thank you. And I appreciate you um, 
she's speaking to that. Yeah. That point. So what advice, recommendations, or suggestions would you have for maybe listeners who, um, you know, would want this type of thing in their, in their company, in their organization, um, but maybe they don't have like the high leadership role to like make the calls around like funding, any advice around that? Yeah. So um, the simplest one is you can have them uh, sign up (laughs) for a complimentary consult call with us, but um, in all seriousness, um, even outside of that, right? So I think it's always going to be helpful if you can be really explicit in showing senior executive leadership why they should care um, and really again, rooting it in the organizational mission, right? So whether you sell widgets or do things with patients or whatever, like there's always a way to explain how, okay, when we're, um, when our own organization in-house is less diverse, um, we're missing out on um, ideas. We're missing out on um, how to approach a problem and how to solve a problem, which is is not good for us, right? If we're not being inclusive in our marketing or in our product development or in our, you know, this again, this is not helping us to reach our mission. Right. If um, we look at, um, again, whether it's within the organization, how people advance and what does the distribution look like in terms of senior executive leadership and those at the junior level? Like a lot of companies have actually fairly diverse um, junior staff. It's right. just as the as we get higher up um, into the org chart, things start to look a little bit more homogenous, right? And so, um, you know, uh, sometimes it's helpful to actually just bring those numbers up, right? Like how many websites have you gone to and when it shows the senior executive leadership team right. or the board members, and it's like, again, all a certain a certain look and feel, um, helping to say that, or, you know, like how, when we're not, um, when we're not seeing the distribution of who's receiving our services or benefiting from our products, like that is, again, not just a hurt to our bottom line, but it's also a hurt to the impact, the larger impact that we have, because organizations' missions rarely talk about actual profit, right? Of course, a, a, a profit, you know, a corporation, a business, it's seeking to be profitable, but the mission is always about impact, right? And so we can't have high impact without having wide at the center of what we do. Right. Which also leads into kind of my next, well, not really leads in, but in a way, because I want to also know around your own practices for self-care, if you'd be willing to share. um, Absolutely. (laughs) I am such a like fierce advocate (laughs) of people engaging in self-care. And I recently heard somebody, I can't remember off the top of my head, some people don't like, again, anytime something becomes sort of like a buzzword yeah. and cause people to potentially reject it just by like eye roll of like, yeah. oh, self-care. <laughs> like, what does that even mean? Bubble baths? Right, and, right. You know, massages. Um, it can, but it's certainly not limited to that. Somebody else I heard talk about it as um, uh, system maintenance. 
right? So if, if you're not somebody who's kind of wooey and you don't like the idea of self-care, it sounds too um, luxurious or indulgent, um, think of it as system maintenance, right? It's like, <laughs> we, yeah, we cannot operate um, optimally uh, when we are not taking care of ourselves. Right. So I think um, it's a couple of things. So we often talk about um, people being exhausted and um, we think that that's just about sleep and it can be. Um, I read again, another really interesting article. If you just Google like the seven types of rest um, that really spoke to me because I was like, oh, I think this is why, even though I don't get a ton of sleep, like that's right. an area I probably could do better in. I don't feel exhausted. And it's because I take rest in other ways. You know, I rest from maybe electronics. I rest from the actual work. I rest from um, uh, like, being there and being available to everyone at all times. Like I take rest from those things and I take active rest. Like I do things that will rejuvenate me. Rejuvenation and rest are not always about the lack of something like the stopping and being still, though I think that is important. It's also proactively engaging in the activities that will give, give you energy and give you joy. Um, And so things Self-care for me, um, absolutely um, physical activity is one of those things for me. I joke that I am a novice CrossFitter. I am a reluctant runner and I am an unconventional yogi. I am not great at any one of those three areas. I don't get uber excited to do any three of them. And actually probably in any one of those activities in the moment, I am like cursing somebody (laughs) in my head. Um, but it's the feeling I have after I've done that activity, like my endorphins are up and then Mm. I'm like, I really have that energy. And it's also those physical reminders, um, in the non-physical times. It's like, when I think of the grit that I had to do or the resilience I had, or the stamina I exhibited, like I can take those lessons and like transfer them into motherhood and entrepreneurship and marriage and all these other things. Right. Um, I also really, um, I love to, I put, you have it in my bio because I shared it with you. Mm -hmm. Karaoke. Some people smoke, some people do drugs, some people drink. (laughs) I, my vice of choice is karaoke. It's so (laughs) cathartic. Like I have a whole system at my house. I will do that. It gives me joy. I can, you know, if I want to be like sappy, I can be sappy. If I want to be like rock star, I can be rock star. I can do whatever I want with with my karaoke time. Um, I think again, enjoying a good meal can be self-care, whether that's one I've prepared at home with all like natural ingredients, or I give myself permission to just go have somebody else cook it for me, take my dish for me. So I don't have to worry about any of that. Right. Like, I think sometimes we get, um, really caught up in that things have to like look a certain way, do it. However, it's going to work for you. Um, and then I will always come back to like my spiritual side, like taking the time to be still and to be silent. That's part of what the 4am work wake up time has been about is like, that it, the house is still, nobody is asking me for anything. I'm not checking emails. Like I'm just in that moment, I have my devotional time in the word I'm praying. I actually have a yoga sequence. I do that is like a prayer through poses thing. It's like 12 little 
I call it my daily dozen devotional yoga sequence. So yeah, things like that um, are what I do to recharge and um, yeah, just to make sure that I am operating on a full tank. No, that's awesome. It has been amazing talking with you. Thank you so much. Before we finish, I want to just give you the opportunity to add anything else before we finish as well as share. I mean, I'll of course post your link, share how people can reach you, connect with you any of that. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm on all this, pretty much all the socials. I'm not, I, except Twitter. I'm not really Twitter. I think I have like a pseudo Twitter account that I just <laughs> read other people's things. Um, but yeah, I can't do once. If you know me, I'm verbose AF. I'm definitely not <laughs> going to be able to stick to 160 characters on anything, but Instagram, you can find me at Grace, Grit and Glory. Um, on, uh, Facebook, I'm just Christina Farinacci Roberts, LinkedIn, same thing. Um, and then you can find us at widedynamicdialogues.com if you are looking for that. Um, I, on a separate but related note, um, I have a breakthrough to becoming three-month coaching program that will um, officially launch um, in January um, with any of those participants. And I'm starting to draw a wait list um, for people who are interested in learning more and, and possibly participating in that. And I would say the reason that does connect um, back to this wide work is um, one of the things that we, I think, do differently is not just center DEI work on like helping white people be better about something, yes. <laughs> right? Or thinking about things differently. Yeah. Again, it tends to be, it's a lot of DEI, conventional DEI work centers whiteness. We really come at it also of recognizing there's going to be all different types of people in our audience. And we want to help those in marginalized communities um, actually recognize, again, their own power and Um, to be celebrated and honored. And so the Breakthrough to Becoming program is really, um, it's really focused on, you know, accomplished and ambitious women who are, you know, probably doing just fine in a lot of ways, but maybe feeling a little stagnant or a little complacent and really want to Um, what I say, kind of have um, a way to optimize their being in order to maximize their doing, right? In a way that is with more ease. It's To me, I like been talking about sort of freedom, fulfillment, and flow. Like that's what I want to get out of this um, in order to have that flourishing um, that is, is sustainable and substantive. So I would say those are the ways that people can connect with me and the ways that um, I would love to be of service to them. Awesome. Well, that sounds amazing. Thank you so, so much for all the work you're doing. It's amazing. And for your time here today, thank you. It has been so awesome and wonderful talking with you. Oh, thank you for having me. And thank you again for the work that you do. Hey friends, real quick before you go. I wanted to invite you to join the Redesign Changemaker Circle. It's my virtual coaching, learning, and community space for white women like you and me that want to do better and create change in our professional spaces and personal life and community. Our heart is in it, but often we experience challenges, get frustrated, feel unsure of what to say and do, and feel stuck about the best next steps. The Changemaker Circle provides you with the emotional and community support, communication and relational strategies, and anti-racism and inclusion leadership skills that you need to make an impact in your personal life and professional spaces. 
So check out the Changemakers link in the show notes and schedule a chat with me to learn more about it. Hope to talk to you soon. Now it's time for you to reflect, decide what your next steps are, and start taking action. For additional support, join our mailing list and be the first to get access to new resources, workshops, and upcoming events. The link is in the show notes. Until next time.